In this fractured world, how do the arts build community, understanding and inspire change? How does art help us define who we are and our place in the world? April Gornick is known for her large-scale landscape paintings which embrace the vastness of sea and sky. Her imagined landscapes, built up through a series of underpaintings, are meditations on light and time. Her work is included in the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, MoMA, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. She is a director of the board of the Sag Harbor Cinema Arts Center and co-founded the Church Arts Exhibition Space and Creativity Center, which is a sanctuary for visual performing literary artists and other creatives. Together with her husband, the artist Eric Fischel, they are at the center of Sag Harbor's Arts District. And in this episode, we'll also hear from some of the talented artists they've brought to their stages. April Gornick, welcome back to the Creative Process and One Planet Podcast. Mia Funk, it's so nice to see you again. So since we've last spoken, you've just come out with this exhibition, The Other Side. Of course, there have been great developments with the flourishing of the Church Residency and Cultural Center that you co-founded with your husband, Eric Fischel. Full disclosure, I was one of the first residents, even as the church was breaking grounds. Yes, that's true. And then you have the Sag Harbor Cinema Art Center. So you've been very busy. But when we look at your paintings and you step back, we see these vast, immersive paintings. You really enter them. They're so tranquil. You wouldn't have this sense of someone who is so busy and active. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not meaning to suggest that they're separate, truly, but the part of me that's in my studio is looking for something else, something more grounding, something deeper in my life, something that's a kind of a spiritual quest that I've been on my whole life. So much as I care about all the activities that I'm engaged in in the community of the East End of Long Island, when I'm in my studio, I'm looking for something that I think is of a kind of an ultimate importance to my soul that's different from my work to help other people and to make the world more equitable and kinder and more sensitive to the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all things that I care about deeply, but my work is much more a private expression. And I don't mean to separate those two things either. I'm struggling a little bit with this because I don't want to sound like there's a big separation between my concern for the planet and other people and bringing art to people and giving people the opportunity to have an environment. In terms of the church, for instance, should we describe what that is so that people aren't wondering what we're talking about? It's not a religious institution, but it had been an old Methodist church that was built originally in 1835. And I'll skip the history, which is interesting but lengthy. And it came on the market. It was purchased by three other people and then us. And we renovated it to be an arts and creativity center. Arts is deeply important to us, but creativity in all its forms is equally important to encourage and extol at the church as far as we're concerned. We ended up calling it the church because everyone we knew, every like acquaintance and almost stranger and good friend said, you know what's happening at the church? Who owns it now? You should get it. Things like that. Anyway, so it, it was a natural place to develop that way. So we have art and we have poetry readings and we have dance performances and rehearsals and all of our residents are from different kinds of creative endeavors. And we haven't quite enacted this as much as I would like, but we want to have people that are computer scientists and composers and environmentalists, anyone who is using creativity to make a positive change in the world and to express themselves. That's the basic idea of it. So when we started it up, the idea was to be able to invite the community for civil, inspiring, generous conversations in an intimate setting. Because although it's a large building, we found that it feels very intimate inside and we left a lot of it very raw. It's unusual for an American renovation because you can see all the rafters and how it was built, basically, at the same time as you review an exhibition or watch someone dance. So that's been really exciting. People love it. And it seems to engender a kind of spiritual response. I don't know if it's in the architecture or what, but I am very serious when I say that most people that present there become more forthcoming and more generous and personal in their responses than normal. 
and they've told us that they, they feel comfortable doing that. So it, I think it feels like a safe space for people, which is nice. I mean, if there's two meanings for sanctuary, you can have a sanctuary, you can have a sanctuary. And I think it's a little bit of a creative sanctuary for people has become that. So interesting. Well, I think obviously it reflects what you and Eric have put into it and your mission and the whole yeah. collective. But also, that is an interesting question. How much does place inspire us? How much does architecture inspire us? I mean, we, we could be having this conversation in New York and it would be different. It could not be the same. I was literally saying to Eric yesterday, we were walking down the K and talking about I don't know what, and, and suddenly I said, people just don't think about place enough. We don't recognize the importance of place. I think it's a little bit the social media environment that we're living in now where we're all bent over a screen, but to locate yourself, to try to locate yourself in a place is reifying, it's identifying, it gives you a sense of positive self-consciousness, I think, if you find that you're comfortable or not. Just being able to feel out the positive or negative effects of a space or place is really, really important. And I don't think people spend enough time affording themselves that contemplation of place. And to go back to my work, that's a little bit what I'm doing, is I've been trying to sort of locate myself outside of myself as a way of reflecting back on who I am as a person. That might sound odd, but it becomes an important metaphor for the broader, expansive self that I have going out into the universe, as well as my own limited personhood. And I need a lot of space to do that, so that's why the paintings are large, and that's why they're expansive. I'm glad that this show has been resonating strongly with people, because a lot of people have said, oh, these are more powerful paintings suddenly. And I thought, are they really? Because I don't think of them as being fundamentally different from work that I've done before. But for some reason, and maybe it's climate change and having more sensitivity to the fragility of the environment that's making them feel there. But for whatever reason, people are identifying with them in a different kind of way and in a, in a positive way, generally. Yeah, exactly, because you do embrace beauty, and I do think that the looming climate crisis, 2023, is the warmest year on record, and, you know, we keep on breaking those records. It's um, terrifying, absolutely. And it's overwhelming. That's the other thing. It's, like, so overwhelming to people. This is a scale of problem that we have never encountered before. We talk about World War this and World War that. This is global catastrophe. It's huge. It's affecting literally every part of our whole planet. And it's importantly, I think, bigger than anyone can actually take in. And I think everyone has the best intentions of trying to make positive change, unless it disturbs their cell phone use and their car driving too much. I have to get a little more serious about that. But anyway, I've chosen my work because I've loved the outside world. I love the things outside of myself. I love what isn't immediate to me. And I love projecting onto that as a way of kind of trying to reach the distance between my inner self and vastness. But to try to do that in a way that makes other people feel inspired by it, not be chided for not taking care of it. It's not something that I intend to be a message per se, but I think it might be a better message if it's not saying, people, you've been bad. You have to change your evil ways. You know, I'd rather people look at the natural world and see the heartbreaking beauty of it and sense its fragility and its impermanence and their own impermanence and fragility and then have a response to that rather than say, you have to act, you have to do something. I would hope that would inspire action rather than to cudgel them with a directive. I think it definitely does. It's more than art. If we take it that step further, I think your paintings inspire us to want to preserve and protect this planet. It's so beautiful. And I know you know Carl Safina, who also came on our show. Oh, I love Carl. He's just wonderful. And he says, you know, we don't realize that we're living in a miracle. This planet is a miracle. So why are we doing things to destroy that? Because it is a precarious balance. And, you know, we're not all uh, trained to be climate scientists, but your paintings remind me there's that line by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, if you want to inspire men to build a boat or do a big task, don't start by just giving them the tools, but allow them to dream so that mm -hmm. they dream of the vast and endless sea. So I think that's what your paintings inspire you to, to dream 
of the vast and endless to sea. To dream big. Yeah, to I dream mean, big. I mentioned recently that I'm just starting to read some Emerson late in my life. But I'm glad that I've gotten to it because he talks about history and he says that folded into every person. If you think of this as a fractal situation, I was just reading about this and it blew my mind. There is the understanding and the containment of all of history, of all dreams, of all desires, of all the furthest reaches of our minds and our accomplishments are folded into every person. And how astonishing is that? I mean, I'm so mad at people all the time about what a mess everything is. On the other hand, we are astonishing. We're just astonishing and we have so much potential. But We're also so misdirected by advertising, by product placement, by, you know, false desires. And it's different if someone appreciates something of a beautiful taste or something. That's lovely. But to get everybody addicted to corn syrup and then have them all develop diabetes is really evil, in my opinion. So I'm just always swinging wildly between an appreciation at the amazement of the human spirit and humanity and its accomplishments and then frustration at the bad uses to which that's put. There seems to be everywhere in the world, but maybe particularly more so in America, which is gifted with a vast landscape still. There's this pioneering mythology, and then there's this competing mythology about entrepreneurship, and that almost anything goes there too, like exploring the land, developing the land, and the love of nature is a very strong thing. But then exploiting the land. But calling the outside world natural resources. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about that for a second, because there's the National Resource Defense Council, for instance, it makes it sound like we're trying to protect the things that we make other things with, rather than the fundamental right of the wilderness to remain a wilderness and to let other species cohabit with us and to let the planet be healthy. It all comes down to the same thing, but the fact that we would even have wilderness called natural resources as if they were resources for us to come from the natural world rather than it being this valued thing of itself kind of makes me nuts. And now it's being duplicated with our space exploration. Oh God, I even get me started. Even Elon effing Musk. I mean, I drive a Tesla. He did some good things with his company. Yeah, I mean, I I have one of the earliest electric cars. It's circular, you don't have to keep on Yes, I, I have no intention of upgrading it. It's just fine, just as it is. But the whole atmosphere of we have to go out and find more things on other planets that we can dig up, it's insane. It's really nuts. We just have to find another modality for survival here and fix this yeah. here. I, I could go on with this all day long. All day long. No, it's, it's, I think that's important that what environmentalists have or those who have a strong connection to nature or if you're an artist, you get a lot of joy just from making and sharing. You know, it's relatively cheap. We can talk about art investment. That's another aspect of the market that has to sustain artists. But Mm -hmm. the art of making is something, it's not about having so many possessions. And I think that it gives a lot of joy. And there's so many forms of art that it's renewable. You know, you do a painting and then it can be seen by so many people. It can be shared. Or you write a story, that story can be shared. And it brings people together. And so I think that these ways of thinking on the circular economy are what we have to return to because and there's nothing that can replace the sense of well-being when gazing at art that's about nature, but also just being out in nature. And I think that's what your paintings do. They inspire people to make that step. I attended your recent talk with the Brooklyn Rail, and I saw in the comments someone says, oh, it makes me want to become a landscape painter, which is the good <laughs> great idea. And I think that's what it does. And it, for others who might not feel confident to paint, it makes them want to, oh, wow, you know, I want to go out and I want to appreciate that. So the sense of spirituality, I know you were raised a Catholic. Tell us mm. a little bit about your upbringing and just your path. Well, you know, I was so mad at the Catholic Church and my upbringing and the way that my parents, my mother particularly, was so manipulated to think that if she did one thing for herself, that she was somehow hurting Jesus and the local priests. I mean, it's, it's such a brainwashing kind of situation. On the other hand, if you're raised Catholic, You're raised to believe in miracles and the idea of transubstantiation. And there's so many things about Catholicism. There's so much imagery in Catholicism that's magic, magical thinking, and all sorts of things that let your mind run free to a certain extent. 
you know, like don't get too close to sex or things like that. But in general, I think being raised a Catholic is a little bit of an advantage because it does give you a willful ability to like dream and, and just take off on crazy tangents, being raised from the dead, little things like that. Oh, definitely. And as well as being a solid foundation for many of our educational institutions, you know, before there were seminaries, that was the tradition started by whether it was Catholicism or different religious institutions. So I think that's been really community. And, and also philosophy, Augustine, mm. and all the many books now about monks during the Middle Ages in Ireland and elsewhere who saved precious manuscripts of pagan thinking and saved civilization yeah. by doing that. I mean, religious people tend to be seekers, and seekers tend to be the people that keep us whole and spiritually grounded and not just religious per se. You know, I have one friend in particular who is a wonderful poet, Susan Wheeler. I hope she doesn't mind if I mention this, but she's a devout Episcopalian. And when I first heard that about her, heard her say that she was going to High Holy Days services and stuff, I thought, what? Seriously? You? And it just all seemed too structured and too confining. But the way that she's internalized that for herself is beautiful and very whole and very complicated in a way that I really admire. And I was glad that she told me that and startled me and made me recoil from it because I've come around to thinking I can't cut off someone who's even ascribed to some really particular religion that I would be averse to. I have to understand why and how they internalize it, because it's the internalization of something that makes a difference. So if someone's a devout Catholic and comes up with some sort of real spiritual wholeness for themselves, what do I care if the religion feels good to them for some reason? So I'm easing myself into tolerance by, I think, trying harder to be more empathetic and to understand how something can work for someone else completely differently from myself. Yeah, I mean, people might even think of the institution of marriage. Someone would say, oh, it's a prison. And we know that it ha is full of freedoms and deeper understanding and companionship and love. And I think that's what it comes down to, if it's a commitment that's based on love and understanding and open-mindedness. And I think about actors who've played the roles of classics, and you think, oh, well, what can they add that's been played so many times? They're just doing something that's handed down. I mean, you could say that. They're saying the same lines. But they, as you say, internalize it. They make it their own and they have their own understanding and they contribute in a dialogue. So a prayer can be like that too. It becomes your prayer. Absolutely. Yeah. And many of the most valuable things that we have in culture are things that need to be repeated and they need to be heard again in whatever new context you find yourself in, depending on what epoch you residing in. That makes a big difference. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's... Again, and it relates to art, too. There's nothing new in art, but try being a 21st century artist that thinks you can paint an actual Renaissance painting. I don't think you can because you're too steeped in your own cultural time and place to replicate that. I'm not talking about copying, obviously. I'm talking about the spirit of the thing. The atelier system is largely gone. You know, that whole the under-master painter in which a lot of things were created, too. Yeah, although there's a lot of artists that have manufactories now too i don't know yeah that's you know, true Jeff but cones and people like that you're yeah. right there's not a lot of training this collective art almost yeah. that you'd have or if you talk about the churches you had all these artisans working on this great edifice and that kind of collective nature i remember having this conversation with eric before he was talking about this collective nature of art and that being lost in mm -hmm. some ways and maybe that was unfortunate i feel so that's kind of like oh, spirit he oftentimes talks about patronage too, that the Medicis or whoever that were always commissioning art from artists helped create a supportive environment for their creativity and that we don't have that in the same way today. Now it's market driven. There is support if you get into that, but it's, it's a very different kind of thing. But certainly the egos of the people that were commissioning in the Renaissance had to be acknowledged because there's usually whoever commissioned it at somewhere along the bottom of this row of saints that are in every picture. So plus échange, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit less, it's like more speculative now. And I guess maybe that makes things a little less sincere. You know, I think that you and Eric are both sincere artists, which sounds like a strange thing to say. I know, but we're, 
really, I've been saying this for my whole life. Too. Like when I first started even showing people landscapes that I was doing, I thought I'm going to get laughed out of New York. I wasn't laughed out of New York, but I certainly did feel that people were like landscape, really. And then if they liked the work, if they were a little seduced by it, which I hope people are, then they would say things like, well, I understand this must be an ironic representation of landscape at this time and place. And, and I never pretended it was. I would say, no, actually, it's really sincere. It's just, it's me making art. It's what I really love. And I like poetry and I like things that are beautiful and honest. They kind of stuck firmly by the idea that it was somehow meant to be ironic. So it would be acceptable in the context of, in that case, the late 70s, early 80s, when I first started working on them. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but I started off painting in Ireland seascapes going around. Yeah, just plein air painting. And, but this is the kind of thing that would be, when I came back to Paris, you know, you have to be created ironically. Right, <laughs> so, right, to be acceptable. Be, yeah, it's just very traditional in what I saw and the great seas. I tried to do plein air paintings once. I had this friend named Robert Berlin, who was so mm -hmm. sweet, just a lovely guy, and he was a big plein air painter. Kind of a little influenced by Alex Katz, I thought. Did nice, fresh work. Anyway, he was talking about how he would go outside and he'd see this and that and sort of feel his way through a painting by sitting there right in front of his subject matter. And I thought, well, I do that. What's wrong with me? Well, yours are so big. They're going to get blown over by the wind. But even like little things, I wouldn't. Anyway, I tried to like observe nature one summer. Oops, we were out on Long moves. Island. It's so wiggly. <laughs> I did that like for a couple of months and then I just gave up and I, I couldn't finish the work that I was trying. But I'd started three paintings by the time I went back to the city. I was out on Long Island, but just for the summer then. And I got back to the studio that I had, which was on an air shaft, had like no visibility of any kind of, I mean, not even sky, not to mention something natural outside. And I lined the work up and I was like, well, I know what's wrong with every one of these paintings. And I just like you know, jumped into each one of them and finished them like relatively quickly because I could see what was wrong with them. But I'm not an outside, I'm the opposite of a plein air painter. It's so internalized. I actually need to be kept from that. So Except that things. I need to be out in it. No, but I think with your scale and then the changing light and those things and the wind would pick up, it's just like a practicality of that that just doesn't yeah. work. Well, definitely in large paintings, it's literally, it would be impossible. I try even just like this large, the wind starts picking up and taking it off like a kite. Yeah, I feel advised and forewarned. Thank <laughs> you. I'm not going to try it again. But there are those who do that, and that I think that the dialogue, I mean, you were mentioning actually that you are inspired by, I thought it was not the title so much, but you're inspired by the writings of Annie Arnaud. Her famous book is The Years. And so I thought there's a kind of timeless quality to your work. But like her books, that's a collective memoir. So it's not just her point of view, a memoir of like a whole generation, a whole mm -hmm. period of time. Well, she writes with great certainty about the things that stand out mm -hmm. from each epoch that she has mm -hmm. lived through. And I thought that in itself was interesting. So it's not impersonal. She's clearly making choices. But as I think I mentioned, I was just stunned by the impact, the emotional impact of the way that she was piling up events with very little inflection, emotional inflection. Something and almost just, ordered, like a little or bit of listing. Fragment. I kept thinking yeah. it's almost like listing, just making lists. But then you get through a, a little section of time, and it was staggering what you were experiencing through her listing. It was such an emotional charge. I thought it was just fascinating and also completely insightful, the way that she talked about everybody reacting to colonization and Vietnam War and the 68 protests. And, you know, I could go on and on, but there are so many great examples in that book. Women's rights, abortion rights, it just goes on. She's so crazy brave. And she, I think, girds herself a little bit with her style. Maybe style is the wrong word, but by that kind of austere manner of listing, which nevertheless comes at least into my consciousness as a very emotional experience, a very positive emotional experience, because it also feels forthright and brave and obvious and important. It's very interesting also to think that you could have a memoir of times, and that's how, when you mentioned that you appreciated her work, although you have a single point of view, it's not like you fractured into cubist angles of all this thing, 
but I could see that there is a sense, there's like a dialogue between, I think, time. I feel like it could be something that one might have looked at, you know, centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, because we're thinking about climate change or you discuss the isolation of COVID and these traumas, it can bring us right up to the, the present. Even though it's, it's a realistic point of view, it feels expansive enough I just feel like I can feel the eyes of different generations looking on it. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm pleased to hear you say that. I was not thinking about that, but certainly that would be part of the invitation to want to be an intersection between different kinds of time and epochs and eras and perception meeting in a single work. I mean, if that were an aspiration, I think it would be a good aspiration. It's too big. It's too big for me to expand my head too, but I, I love the idea of that. And if that is something that's contemplated even in the work, by the work, that's a great satisfaction for me. My name is Donna Sanders, and I am presently a master's student in English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. While listening to this deeply insightful conversation between April and Mia, I was prompted to reflect on the true nature of artistic production. Are this world's most skillful and hypostatic examples of painting, of music, and of literature generally crafted in hermetic solitude, or as part of a collective enterprise? When we give ourselves over to a profound creative experience, are we necessarily stepping aside from mainstream society and looking exclusively inward? Earlier, April reminded us of the historical emphasis on artistic patronage, a process by which well-positioned benefactors provided monetary and social capital to working creatives who might otherwise have labored in obscurity. There's something wonderfully sympathetic and idealistic about the patron-artist relationship, insofar as it suggests a communal, society-wide passion for culture and personal expression. In today's world, we're more likely to encounter internecine contests and competition in the creative sphere. Artists of all mediums are constantly battling for supremacy. From pure artistic growth, we have increasingly shifted our focus to the dual pursuits of wealth and popularity. We might consider, as April and Mia will do in just a moment, the ways in which advanced technology has contributed to the commodification of all creative works. The hundreds and thousands of man-hours that Renaissance craftsmen devoted to their magnum opera could not possibly be prized or even tolerated in our present era of expedited production. Today we value speed and efficiency above all other virtues including technical brilliance and soulfulness. For this very reason, it's heartening to hear April talk at length about her personal influences, motivations, and purposes. She reminds us that creativity can still exist for its own sake. The egoistic idols of gain and self-obsession will ever be incapable of thoroughly overwhelming the artist's free, spontaneous passion. Perhaps one day we'll witness a revival of the collective tutelage model, that characterized the 15th and 16th centuries. In the meantime, however, we can only go on nurturing our private ideals and making art for the satisfaction of our own souls. Now, back to the interview. I wonder, as you're painting, you have a sense of a point of view, but there's not people that we can see in it, we can right. imagine from the point of view. That it can be a conversation with time, or do you sometimes feel like, oh, you're going back, or going forward? I don't know if you think about that. I know you read poetry. I know that you also play guitar. You know, I thought I had that esprit d'escalier moment that you usually have after you give a talk or an interview or try to talk about your work where you're kind of going, oh, why didn't I mention, in this case, Bach? Because Bach is so important to me. Certain music, Beethoven, Bach, Schubert, there's certain composers that are very important to me, and they are also inspirations for my work in a way that's almost impossible to describe, but it's deeply in the work. And I mean, if you think about the well-tempered clavier, those pieces are so, on the surface, simple. Their exercises, but even they have these moments where my eyes wallop with tears, you know, and see the first one. Da -da 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 -da. There's something that just overtakes me when I get to the end of it, just with those little bit of changes. I don't know why Bach does that to me so profoundly, but it's all over his music. And what I like about it in terms of my work is, I think, 
because I've thought about this a lot, is that it's very non-narrative. So to arrive at some sort of emotional freighting, again, is kind of an accumulation of simple facts or simple phrases or whatever that with a certain turn, with a certain move, with a certain shift in my painting's light or shift in modality or major to a minor back to a major key in an immodulation, all of a sudden you feel this jolt that like goes right to your core that I think is so astonishing. And I think that's something that I definitely aspire to in my work is to make these little shifts like build them into the painting somehow so that you see these different conditions happening at once and you can move through the paintings and arrive at them on your own time. So it's, it's kind of like an offering I'm making to people that I hope has something like that. But that like, again, is sort of a stylist style, like without any kind of particular flourishes or something. That said, when I was thinking about this at four in the morning, I then started thinking about, you know, that great second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, where it gets like kind of anxious. And I started thinking like, yeah, I love that too. So I'm always all over the place. But I mean, what a, what a wealth of riches we have to draw from in culture. And I hate the idea that most people on the street aren't even familiar with classical compositions. They're not familiar with the history of art. It's amazing. I mean, we're sitting here in this like wealth of riches, this cultural moment, and people don't avail themselves of them because they don't have an introduction that makes it fulfilling or friendly enough. Or I mean, I think that there's been a huge defunding in certain countries, not everywhere, of, you know, musical education, art education, oh my God, and yeah. in favor of STEM, which is also important, but they think about it in terms of pure jobs and training for the future, which is fine, but also with automation, you know, it doesn't mean that you have a guaranteed job in STEM either, because robotics could replace you. Yes. So, well, no, particularly. AI is really scary to me, and I'm a big computer nut, and I use it to make paintings mm -hmm. all the time, all the time. Compositions and stuff. Yeah. yeah, to like work out things in Photoshop, to sketch in full round. But yeah, I mean, we're really looking down the maw of human replacement too, and talking people into being happy about this. Really horrifying. We're actually introducing a new chat. We've done a number of interviews on AI and the future of humanity, and it's scary because we only get the technologies when they're developed. And it has implications for obviously the arts, you know, and AI becoming more generative. And mm -hmm. as you say, people not appreciating the physical, you know, addicted to their screens. Well, that's another reason that I think it's really, I love painting. I like making my paintings myself. I don't I mean, I do and I don't care about how long they take to do because I absolutely have to have them be a certain way. And I think that building all that corporal effort into them reads back to the viewer. And it's an important thing. The thing I'm trying to offer is to have a lot in there. And that involves time and it involves a certain effort that I think you can read like all those zillions of brushstrokes. God only knows how many there are. No, but, it's, it's so true. But yeah, but AI is like shortcutting. And I have a great interview that I'll send you that someone shared with me of these two guys that have been researching AI. And it's amazing, but it's absolutely terrifying, particularly about AI teaching itself to do things that it isn't asked to do. In one case, a program taught itself Persian when it was being asked to do something else. But that is interesting. One thing I am, am interested in is there's possibilities for us to learn the communication, the grammar and the sense of animals. Mm -hmm. Now, they've shown that animals do have, obviously, communication, but even grammar. So that's possible that we could test things that way. Yeah. There's, a, there's a few things like that. You know, I know there's some there's bird studies being done. Yeah. And you can catalog. It's very good at tabulating. The issues, of course, is that we really feel it's important to have the humanities involved in some of this design process, even if they're not engineers, philosophers, artists, people who reflect, you know, what it is to be human and what our values are, because AI is not programmed with ethics. To your point, exactly. So the subject of the interview that I'd mentioned between these two AI researchers and it's a timely example because of the popularity of the movie Oppenheimer. There was a point at which Oppenheimer and others were talking to Congress and the UN and people that could affect positive change about the importance of making sure that the world agreed 
that nuclear mutual destruction would not happen. Just getting that agreement to start a conversation about how to restrict the use of and development of nuclear weaponry was critical to making the world not use nuclear weapons itself. And there's a huge difference in AI now because instead of having the conversation that you just described, which would be scientists talking to artists and creatives and religious leaders to, to hone down what could be altered, what could be damaged, how we could threaten ourselves inadvertently and unconsciously by allowing AI to develop without some kind of understanding of its power, because everything's a corporatocracy now. All governments that I can think of in the world are all corporatocracies. Everybody's trying to cash in on it before the proper research is done, and it's just a nightmare. If you watch this interview, you'll see their well-reasoned arguments rather than hearing me say it's a nightmare and sounding like somebody who's simply scared of it. There's some really good points to be made about trying to get a global understanding of what we're just about to step into, or maybe we're too far into it to draw back, but it's not too late to at least help people understand it and have a better consciousness of it. And by people, I mean governments. Yeah, they have to have some kind of regulation, and it seems like kind of odd to have a philosopher in residence, but I think that they've employed neuroscientists to manipulate people in terms of the attention economy, so why not get some other people in the humanity? We're having Francis Hogan on our shows at Facebook, Whistleblower, and we've had like key engineers from Google and stuff, and they all speak of the dangers, not to mention Steve Jobs not giving his own kids the iPad because the <laughs> iPad seems like, oh, this is quaint. You know, I think that we have to responsibly embrace technology. Another side of your community initiatives throughout, throughout the Hamptons is you have the SAG Harbor Cinema Arts Center. One way that we bring a greater understanding of cinema and its importance and its richness to people is by inviting wonderful guests to come and speak to our artistic director. She's a great interviewer and cinema historian. Then we have some clips of those conversations between Julia dagnola Vallon and really amazing guests. Julie Andrews, screenwriter and director Paul Schrader, director and artist Julian Schnabel to give listeners a taste of some of your cultural offerings. How did you find uh, Mary Poppins? How did you find her movements, uh, her personality? Tony helped a lot, Tony Walton for starters. When he was designing the costumes, he said, I think somehow Mary Poppins has a bit of a secret life. She's a bit naughty. And if he meant it too. And it was a great clue for me because that little wicked thing that she has occasionally. And he said, she's very prim on the outside, but if you notice when I spin or turn, there's a bright orange lining to my jacket or under my skirt, there are petticoats that are wonderfully colored, bright pink and orangey and so on. And it gave me a clue. And then while doing and thinking and talking to the director and so on, you do form certain things like the flying with the feet turned out and things like that. The, the way she walked, tried to make her walk almost as if she weren't quite touching the ground. But I didn't know very much about any of it. So it was happening almost as, as I was moving along in the movie. Well, Taxi Driver, the first script I wrote it is very much a young man's film. That's full of the anger of a young man and the striking out. And also it's full of the pathology of suicidal glory, that if I suffer enough, I will earn my own redemption. And which, as I just said, is a mortal sin. And I circled back around this over the years. Mishima, Light Sleeper, Dr. Jigolo, The Walker. I, find I came back around to it again this time. And I didn't realize how infused this film was going to be with Taxi Driver because I had taken the main character from Diary of a Country Priest, I'd taken the milieu from Winter Light, taken the elevation scene from Tarkovsky, taken the ending from a film by Carl Dreyer called Ordet. But what I didn't realize is how deeply I had wrapped all of these things in the pathology of Travis Bickle. So somebody can't say, well, that's not uh, historically correct. This is not a forensic biography by any means, but there was an extraordinary quote that Van Gogh had written and Francis Bacon had rewritten that particular quote where he said, how to make, I don't know if the word was facsimile, but an equivalence. You're telling but what you've created is a lie, but the lie is more real than the truth. 
And so I think that the truth of the movie is maybe as true as I could tell the story, what I thought was possible. It's a movie. And in working with actors, I mean, what are we doing when we're doing that? You, know, you, you can have a subject and you can have a story. A story can be true to whatever narrative, but it can be very boring to watch. I think that Willem's performance is probably the best performance he gave in his life. I mean, he's kind of done some great things. Marty Scorsese, where he played Christ in Marty's movie, felt that this was his, you know, I felt when I, he was sitting in the dirt and he, all of a sudden that smile came across his face. I thought, well, you know, when he dies, I'll probably show that clip and everybody, <laughs> there, you know, the Oscars will have a teary cry or whatever. <laughs> We've been having a lot of, and thank God for this, Zooms and talks. And during COVID, we were able to continue making important presentations of films and subject matters that the films elicited. We had William Friedkin on. Oh, um, oh he's just passed. I know. What a, he was just an amazing, amazing person. But because our artistic director is so hooked into so many people, we had the opportunity to allow our audiences to experience a huge amount of profoundly interesting personages, creators, etc. And so speaking of technology and how annoying it may seem in some ways or stultifying or whatever, it's also very expansive, used the right way. It's just like anything else. It's a tool. We've got all these tools. AI is a tool. Everything's a tool. So how does that manifest itself? How does that alter cultural interaction? So yeah, we've had incredible guests and everything that we do at the church in Sag Harbor, we have recorded and we have a YouTube channel so people can listen to interviews and they won't miss anything. And I think that's all very important. We're archiving ourselves to fairly well, I think, at this point in this culture. And I'm sure you have almost everything archived, all of your interviews, yeah. right? So that allows for such an incredible wealth of information and accessibility for people, what we do without it. Sure. And, and for those who, who can't visit, who might be in elsewhere in America or around the world, we're popular in countries like India. We just launched our Mandarin English channel, so we have a lot of wow. different... <laughs> yeah, because if listeners there, people like learn about culture and expand their knowledge of English, so it's a bilingual English Mandarin channel. Well, you know, excuse me, but kudos to you, because that's the way to get peace on Earth. I always think, is to make people more aware of how other people are the same and have similar wonderful interests and can agree that art is wonderful and culture is wonderful and technology is wonderful. But in a positive and more unanimous experience, I think that's a huge key to trying to, oh God, prevent conflict. Sorry, yeah. just thought about Israel yeah. and Hamas and the yeah. Palestinians, who I like to think of as separate. I, yeah, of course. Oh my God, so horrible. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's really important because I think that if we can get together in these moments, often it's cultural moments because that's when we can leave the politics behind. You know, they have unifying figures. So if you think about the Middle East, I mean, Farouz, the singer, was beloved, I think, by Israelis and all of the Arab world. Mm -hmm. And so these moments of beauty can really connect. Sometimes you can be taught to hate a people, a country, but an individual that when you meet them, you know, eye to eye, voice to voice, that, that's very hard if you understand where they come from. They've not been so damaged and traumatized, which can really lead to that intergenerational trauma. You can really understand that we're so much more alike than, mm -hmm. than we are different. Absolutely. And those are the really nice aspects of technology. And I just always like that kind of human curation, that human selection. And we should say, like, it's not just human, because some people think it's like too much human-centered design, like it should be about nature-centered design. Sometimes we just create these technologies just to see if we can do it, and then we have to spend. That's true. The fossil fuel industry and all these things, the next generations will be really having to clean up things that we've done you know, this decade, last decade. And it's been like that for a long, long, long time, whether it's wars or technologies or whatever, or misguided religious instincts and directions. I mean, yeah, it's always been about cleaning up after the generation preceding you, but it doesn't have to be total 
global annihilation we're looking at right now. It's a little bit worse at the moment. Time, it's accelerating. So speaking of the next generation, we have one of our students who's from Long Island and goes to Columbia University. Hi, April. Thank you for taking my questions. Landscape portraiture is an enduring and versatile genre, ever shifting in accordance with the twin marches of time and style. In your opinion, how have the techniques and objectives of the landscape adapted to fit our present era of ecological strife? I think that there's a lot of landscape art that have very specific messages, sometimes written into them, like literally with words, sometimes just the, the kinds of great thanatopic, horrifying photographs of land that's been destroyed by industry. I'm thinking of the Niger Delta photographs of Sebastian Salgado. And those are all really, really important. And I think that it's interesting that she starts off talking about landscape portraiture. I'm stuck on this, actually. That's the way that she talks about landscape initially, because it is a, a portrait of a place, in a sense, but it's also a self-portrait. So it reflects the artist and reflects the place. I mean, all certainly all paintings do that, really, obviously. And I personally think that all photography also reflects the auteur, the maker. So there's naturally going to be evolutions of any subject matter in art making. That's a given. But there's such a variety of ways that people are trying, I think, to make a statement about how alarming this all is and how important landscape is. Everybody's doing it in a different way, slightly, more or less directly, and I think it'll keep evolving. That's you know, I think the pretty obvious way of describing it. Your 2014 charcoal collection, which integrates visual art, music, and literature, is very much in keeping with the philosophical concept of the Gesamtkunstwerk, German for total artwork or artistic synthesis. Do you believe that different artistic mediums ought to be drawn together and harmonized? What does this kind of syncretic and all-encompassing creative work provide for the viewer or the consumer? Again, I think that everyone wittingly or unwittingly syncretizes in different eras, principally the more immediate and forward-looking ways that all artists posit themselves in time so that you're consciously or unconsciously drawing on those things. But I didn't know that I was doing that in a body of charcoal drawings in 2014. I love the idea. And finally, the East End of Long Island is a wonderfully lush and meditative locale full to brimming with sandy beaches, dense greenery, and a diverse array of wildlife. How do you take inspiration from these surroundings? Long Island also experiences very distinct seasons. Does one season in particular appeal to your artistic sensibilities? One season in particular definitely does not appeal to my sensibilities, although I tend not to work with winter subject matter quite as much. It's It goes a little too abstract, and I really like the juxtaposing weight and light and heaviness versus lightness in terms of like something weighing less and that happens a lot in my work I'm thinking about gravity and weightlessness and those two conditions so winter tends to blur that in a fascinating way and I have made a few works of art that take place in winter but I tend not to so much winter light is a whole other thing that is shockingly existential to me and you know maybe someday I'll have to I'll need it for something but I kind of paint what I need for my own sense of self-expression. And what I particularly like about the landscapes around where I live, the marshes, etc., is that Long Island is very much at the edge of itself. It's like at the edge of its own landmass, the moment where the sea encroaches on it. So I've just realized about myself, for whatever reason, I'm very attracted to being at the edge of a landmass that seems to be my natural inclination. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Eat real foods, not too much, mostly plants, to quote <laughs> Michael Pollan. I'm just, I'm so worried about the world and I'm so worried about young people and I'm so worried about people suffering. I think that people have to be super inventive and I think they have to reach deep into simpler pleasures. I think that's really important. And I'm talking about, you know, reading a book that's a book, which I don't. I read on my iPad principally, but I think that being outside and 
breathing air and understanding what air is and not accepting water that's bottled, but demanding clean water for everybody and to clean up the mess we've made is super important. And given the disdain for quote-unquote boomers that everyone seems to have now, with good reason, any advice coming from someone my age to someone who's young, I think might be annoying to them. But I think the pandemic taught us a lot about values and fundamentals and the importance of being able to relax and slow down. If there was anything that was good that came out of the pandemic, I think that it really did slow people down a lot in ways that they weren't expecting. And I hope that we don't lose that entirely. Bad as it was, I just think that was like a positive unintended consequence that somehow or another people have to like not lose their souls, you know, like look for your soul. That would be the best advice I think for any human on the planet. Yeah, to know to know yourself, that inward journey. We have to take that time. Yeah, and that's how you hopefully would not lose your moral compass, which we're all like threatened by with the way that everything is material and fast moving and wasteful. Well, thank you, April Garnick, for sharing your vision and values and your journey, your compassion for the natural world, and just taking viewers into these vast spaces of memory, emotion, and imagination that reconnect us to the sea, earth, and sky. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. It was a great pleasure talking to you. That was just a, a great conversation. Thank you for leading it so beautifully. Oh, my pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Donna Sanders with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Donna Sanders. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. Johann Sebastian Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, Book One, Prelude Number One in C Major, was recorded by Kimiko Ishizaka. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.